we have wonderful promises that God has laid out in his word, and that's in part why we have a heart of joy and why we can sing. And so I'm excited to start this series. Our staff is going to begin on Wednesday nights, just studying through the word of God, the the different promises that God has laid out in his word. And one Bible scholar said that uh, there's over 8,000 different promises in the word of God. The Bible tells us that God is a promise making God and he's a promise keeping God. And uh, God's promises are like divine insurance policy, right? Um, and in an insurance policy, when you know it's covered, you don't sweat it, right? And when the circumstances happen in your life and, and hardship or illness or some sort of accident, when you know what's covered, you can just relax But on the other hand, if you don't know what's covered in the insurance policy, if you're ignorant of it, well, then we would tend to worry, right? And so one of the problems that many of us run into, I think, today is that we either don't know or we forget the promises of God throughout our lives. And uh, when we're faced with adversity or some sort of trial or difficulty, normally God's promises aren't the first thing that pop into our brain. And so in this series, we're going to look at just a few of God's promises to you and me, and I know it's going to be an encouragement to you. It's been an encouragement to me, and uh, my prayer is that it'll be a help to you. But as we, as we look at the promises of God, uh, we have to understand some fundamental facts about his promises. And this is all just pre-talk. We're not, we're not even getting there. So if you're standing in the back and you want to find a seat, you're welcome to do that. But God, God wants me to build my life on his promises. He wants you and me as his children to build our lives on his promises. Uh, He doesn't want us to build our lives on petty rules. Um, He'd rather us build our lives on his promises. And God makes two kinds of promises in scripture. First, he makes unconditional promises. And then he also makes conditional promises. The unconditional ones are the ones where there's no strings attached. No matter what you do, God's promises are going to happen. For instance, the second uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't really depend on what we do. He's coming back. Uh, that's an unconditional promise. However, there's other promises in the Word of God where, you know, based on your faith and your obedience, God says, if you'll do this, then I will do that. And it's not automatic. And those promises aren't automatically yours or mine. You have to meet a requirement or some sort of circumstance or condition. And if you don't meet the condition, you could forfeit the promise, right? Such is the case with the promise that we'll examine tonight. But also we need to understand this, that God makes promises for us for two different reasons. I I believe the first reason is that he gives us these promises in his word to teach us to trust him in difficult times. The Bible says in Psalm 119 verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction for thy word hath quickened me. Or we could say your promises. In other words, when I'm hurting, I can find comfort in your promises because they lead me to life. And if you weren't ever in a bad circumstance, okay, we wouldn't need the promises of God to cling to, but we know that's not reality. We know that life brings trouble and heartache and burdens, and so we need those promises to to trust him in difficult times, but also God gives us promises to make us more like him. And this is really what I'm going to get at tonight, because I believe part of God's purposes in our lives as his disciples is to make you and me more like his son, Jesus Christ. One of the ways that he does that is through the promises that we find in this book right here. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. So notice that, that by these exceeding great and precious promises, ye may be partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Well, that his nature would become a part of us. And so you see, the more you and I trust in his promises, the more you and I change our lives, and that's certainly an important truth to keep in mind 
as we go through this series, that you grow more like Jesus through his promises. And so tonight, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to look at Matthew chapter 11. And if you are, as you're turning there, let's stand in honor of God's word. Matthew chapter 11. This is an incredible promise. I find it very ironic that this is the promise that I was assigned to teach on tonight. But we're going to look at the promise of rest. In Matthew chapter 11, a very familiar text that I hope to contextually help us understand tonight. In verse 28, Jesus is talking to multitudes of people and primarily to his disciples. And he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's the promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you feel weary tonight? Do you feel burdened down by life? Are, are, are you just tired to the point of you can't rest in your mind, you can't rest in your body, you can't even rest in your soul? If that's you tonight, like many of us, I tell you this, you're not alone, number one. And I believe tonight's invitation from Jesus, I do believe um, if you focus your attention for just a moment, it could be an encouragement to you. It could be a help to you. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the promises in your word and how that they help us, they conform us to the image of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we know that this life is so much bigger than just us. Um, we're here so that the gospel may be spread around the world. And as we become more like Jesus, we know that in turn, more people come to know you as their savior. And, and so Lord, help us tonight as we look at this promise in your word. I pray that you would uh, give it clarity and I pray that it'd just be a help to people. And I pray that we'd open our hearts and our minds to what your word says. And Lord, thank you so much for this promise in particular. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So in order to understand this promise more clearly, I believe it would help to kind of have some context and know what's been going on in the book of Matthew up to this point. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been working with his disciples and they'd been out working and ministering and serving for a long time. And they've been traveling about and they've been doing a lot of ministry all over the place. They've been healing people who need to be healed. The blind are now seeing, the lame are now walking, um, the deaf are hearing. I mean, can you imagine being a blind person? This would be so awesome. You're a blind person and the first thing that you see is the Son of God standing before you, right? And so exciting things are happening and He's doing all these things. He's casting out devils. He's doing the work. And his disciples are right there with him, going all over the place. And not only are they doing all of this stuff, but there's difficulty that they're facing along the way. Now, many of you would know and understand this, but it takes a lot out of you to serve the Lord. It takes a lot out of you when you're doing the work of the Lord. Uh, it, it really does. I, I believe, you know, our pastor or, or any of the guys that come up here and preach, you know, um, when they're done, they're exhausted. It's, it's draining. It's honestly draining mentally. It's draining emotionally. It's, it's, it's draining spiritually. I believe spiritual warfare happens right here 
as the man of God stands up and, and preaches the word of God, I believe that the devil's working very hard um, against him. And, and there's just something about public speaking. There's something about preaching, especially. It'll, it'll wear you out. And you may not be working on the railroad for 18 hours and, and all day and all night. It may not be like a physical exhaustion from manual labor, but it's certainly an, an exhaustion. And that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples are experiencing. They're doing the work of God faithfully. They're going all around the known world saying Jesus is the Messiah and he has the good news of salvation and you can trust in him. And, and not only that, Jesus is going around and healing people. They're performing all sorts of miracles. I mean, you can imagine how, if you've ever not done it, how exhausting preaching could be. Imagine how exhausting it would be to cast out demons, like the emotional, physical toll that would take um, to cast out demons from people. And, and, and Jesus was doing this and that's exactly what Jesus was doing. And, and so there's people all over the place they've got serious issues. And you, you'd imagine if you had a serious issue, you'd do everything within your power to get that issue fixed and, and to get your needs met. And um, there's people all over the place, and I love this story in the Bible. I find it, it tickles me a little bit, that uh, Jesus tells his disciples, let's, let's get on our boat. Let's go across the Sea of Galilee, which would have been a four-mile trip. They would have rowed four miles across the Sea of Galilee, and, and we'll get away from the crowds for a moment, and uh, we'll have some time on sea, and when we get to the other side, we'll have some time together. And the disciples, I imagine, are going, thank goodness, you know, finally, get the people away from us. We need a break. And uh, so four miles they're rowing. Well, apparently this multitude of people ran 11 miles faster to when the disciples rode to the other side of the sea. And there they are. And as they get to the shore, here's the disciples going, how in the world are these people here? Jesus, I thought we were going to have some time alone with you. I thought we were going to get some time of rest and, and solitude. This is ridiculous. But that's exactly what these men are dealing with on a regular basis. People who constantly need their attention, people who constantly need their time, want something from them, people always uh, looking for something, people who need to be healed, people who need to experience the miracles that they want to see, demand after demand after demand after demand after demand. This is the life of Jesus and his disciples. And instead of getting frustrated, and instead of getting annoyed uh, at the group of people who don't leave them alone, the Bible tells us that Jesus actually looks at this crowd of people and then he's moved with compassion because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And he says, guys, hey, let me, let me teach you something here. The fields are white into harvest. There's really a great need here, but the laborers are few. There's not enough people to reach the people who need me. And there's work to be done. And so immediately in the next chapter, Jesus says, you know, there's not enough laborers, so I'll take care of it myself. And uh, he takes his disciples, and the Bible says he gives them power to do miracles. Can you imagine? Uh, up to this point, Jesus was doing all of the miracles, but now he gives his disciples the power to perform miracles. If I was a disciple, I would just be like, wow, this is awesome. You know, this is amazing. It'd be like one of those TV shows where you're like, you get a car and you get a new house and you get a vacation to Hawaii and you get new eyes and you get new ears and you can walk again. You know, it'd be amazing, right? And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the power to do these things. But before you go, I also want you to realize and I also want you to understand this, guys. People aren't going to like you. <laughs> and it's as a disciple, I'd be like, how are they not going to like me? I mean, I'm going to fix their life. I'm going to fix their affliction. 
And so when Jesus describes what he wants them to do, he says this, I want you to go out into all the land of Israel. I want you to travel to all these places, and, and I want you to tell people about the Messiah. I want you to tell people about me, and, and, uh, but here's the deal. Don't bring any food with you. I don't want you to know where your next meal is coming from. Don't bring any money with you. Don't bring a backpack. Don't bring a change of clothes. Don't even bring a walking stick. Just go out. Do what I've asked you to do by faith. And we got to keep in mind, these are real people. These are 12 men who have real lives. Uh, they would have had real emotional needs like you and I have. Okay, so if they're going out and they're helping people and people are just rejecting them and people are pushing them out of their city and people are mad at them, how would that make you feel? You're, you're putting in this time, you're putting in this effort to help people and to meet their needs and to come up with solutions and they just, they don't accept you. Well, that would emotionally be hard to handle. Um, that'd be really tough for me at least. And then on top of that, they're leaving their families. We know Peter had a wife. Like, who's going to take, of Peter, take care of Peter's wife if he had kids? Who's going to take care of the kids? These guys weren't just asked to do this for a couple days or a couple weeks. This, according to scholars, was months, close to a year. They're away from their normal routine of life, and they're out healing people of diseases, and they're out preaching the Word of God, and they're doing the work of the ministry, and they're laboring, and they're working faithfully. And maybe when Jesus told that, maybe there's times along the journey where they're like, I can't believe he didn't let us bring money just to get a snack. Like, seriously, nothing at all? What's going on here? Is, is God faithful? Is, is all this worth it? It had to be tough. Day in and day out, the weight of the work that Jesus asked them and called them to do had to be pretty heavy. Day after day, I can imagine thoughts like this ran through their head. I miss my family, man. I miss my friends. I miss just going out and fishing and, and making some money. Think about a life, a life of nothing for yourself, completely. A life completely full of just giving to other people with nothing in return. Have you ever been there before? It's draining. And that's what the disciples are dealing with on a regular basis, day in and day out. And not only that, one of the greatest men to ever live, actually the greatest man to ever live in Jesus' opinion, John the Baptist, one of the leaders of the Messiah movement, gets imprisoned. And this was a, a major motivational digression, if you could imagine, for the movement of the Messiah. And now he's in prison. And now he has his doubts. He says to his disciples, I need you to go find Jesus and ask him if he's really the one who's supposed to come. I need you to go ask Jesus if he's really the Messiah. And so John the Baptist, the greatest of all men, is beginning to even doubt because of the weight, because of the burden. He's in prison. He's bound. And so John the Baptist's soul didn't even have rest. And that's when Jesus now says this. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, this is not just for Jesus' disciples then, church family. This is for Jesus' disciples today. That would be you and me that claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be you and me, those of us whose life has been transformed by the powerful, unchangeable gospel of Christ. Those of us who've claimed that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. We've asked him to forgive us of our sins, come into our heart and save us. And now we've committed our lives to follow him. This is not just something that Jesus turned to those disciples and said, this is for you. This is also for his disciples for the ages. 
and he says, come unto me. I find it amazing that Jesus, the Son of God, pause, time out, Jesus, the Son of God, invites you and me to come unto him. He's not some detached deity that's out there and is untouchable, unapproachable. This very Son of God who raised himself from the dead, paid the penalty of your sin, and has done miracle after miracle after miracle in your life had we had time tonight to testify. The Son of God himself pleads with us. He beseeches us. He says, come unto me. Just come unto me. He says, all ye that labor, that word labor is kopiao in the Greek. It means to grow weary. I wonder if there's anyone here who's grown weary tonight. It means to toil, to work with effort of bodily and mental labor alike. So come unto me, all you who are weary. You've grown weary because of the mental and bodily effort that you've put toward this life. Hey, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden for tidzo. Those who've had a load, they're loaded down. They're burdened down with the weight that life brings. I wonder if there's anybody here tonight that's just weighed down from the things that this life has brought today, this past week, this past month. Listen, if you're weary, if you're burdened down, Jesus says, I will give you rest. Church, that's a blessing. That is so undeserved. That we didn't merit that at all. That's incredible. What a promise that Jesus himself pledges to give us rest. But remember, this promise of rest does not come automatically. There is a condition to it. What is that condition, you might ask? It's to go to him. How often do we try to deal with burdens of our lives in our own strength? In our own power, in our own wisdom. I'd venture to say all too often, upon Jesus' invitation to follow him, we're given instruction. He says this, take my yoke upon you. I see here that we must submissively commit to him. His yoke. Take my yoke, he says. What's Jesus saying here? Okay, to start, Jesus was a rabbi. That's just the Hebrew word for teacher. And, and yet, he was more than that. We believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the embodiment of God himself. But if you had been a first century Jew and Jesus showed up to your synagogue one Sabbath morning, the odds are the category that you would throw him in would be rabbi or some traveling sage. And like every rabbi in his day, Jesus had two things. First, he had a yoke. He had a yoke, not a literal yoke, but he was a teacher. He was not a farmer. But a yoke was a common idiom in the first century for a rabbi's way of reading the Torah. But it was even more than that. It was his set of teachings on how to be human, his way to shoulder the, the at times crippling weight of the pressures of this life, things like marriage or your career or your spirituality or your money or conflict resolution, government, all of it. A rabbi would have a way of life that he would instruct his learners 
how to shoulder those burdens of life. It's an odd image for those of us who don't live in an agrarian society, but imagine two oxen. If you have that picture, Aaron, you could show it. This is what a yoke is. It's two oxen joined together, pulling a cart or a plow to prepare the ground for farming. And a yoke is how you would shoulder a load, a burden. And what made Jesus unique wasn't that he had a yoke. Other rabbis had yokes. But what made his yoke fascinating is that he said he had an easy yoke. Jesus was a rabbi, and therefore he had apprentices. In the Hebrew, the word is talmudim. It's oftentimes translated as disciple. I believe maybe a better word to capture the word talmudim might be apprentice. But to be one of Jesus' talmudim, one of Jesus' disciples or apprentices under Jesus, simply it's to organize your life around three basic goals. Number one, be with Jesus. Number two, become like Jesus. And number three, do what he would do if he were you. The whole point of apprenticeship or discipling is to model all of your life after your rabbi, namely Jesus. And in doing so, recover your soul. And and to have the warped part of you put back into shape, to experience healing in the deepest parts of your being, being, to experience what Jesus called life more abundantly. Jesus was all about healing people, not just physically, although he did a whole lot of that, but Jesus was also concerned about healing people spiritually, saving them at soul deep level. How? Through salvation and apprenticeship under him, following him wholeheartedly. So anywhere, anywhere and everywhere Jesus went, he was constantly offering an invitation. Usually it sounded like this, come unto me, or follow me, be my apprentice, be my follower, be my disciple. That was Jesus' go-to language. And in our passage of scripture, we find an invitation. I'm so thankful for all of the tired, the burned out, the stressed, the anxious, those those stuck in traffic and behind on their to-do lists, reaching for another cup of coffee just to make it through the day. Anybody here like that tonight? I guess I should rephrase that. Is there anybody not like that here tonight? (laughs) Jesus' invitation is to take up his yoke, to travel through life at his side, learning from him how to shoulder the weight of life with ease, not to remove the weight of life, but to shoulder the weight of life with him, which provides ease, to step out of the burnout society to a life of soul rest. Now, this sounds great, but let me just call out the elephant in the room because if you're anything like me, you might be sitting here tonight thinking, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, as far as I can tell, but uh, I'm tired. I'm weary. I, I'm worn out. I live with a low-grade fatigue that rarely goes away. And honestly, I'm a little burned out on people. I'm a little burned out on church. I'm a little burned out on this stuff. What gives? Am I missing something? And hidden in plain sight is this invitation of Jesus. And it's what Dallas Willard called the secret of the easy yoke. I want to read to you what Dallas Willard wrote on Matthew 11. He said, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle, 
Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us. He says it's a strategy bound to fail. That just blew my mind when I read it. It blew my mind so hard I had to go find Brother Ben in his office this week and go, dude, have you ever read Dallas Willard before? (laughs) It's so profound. Herein lies the secret of the easy yoke. Here it is. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, well, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. The lifestyle is much different than just a list of do's and don'ts. You see, we expect to be like Jesus in those on-the-spot moments when we have to forgive. We expect to be like Jesus on those on-the-spot moments when we have to be kind rather than say that rude comment. We expect to be like Jesus on the the on-the-spot moments where we have to be patient and and loving and tender with our child who is out of control. But you're not going to be like Jesus in those on-the-spot moments if you haven't adopted his lifestyle. And so the secret of the easy yoke is if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. To further explain, I want to illustrate this with a story that one man read from his book that I thought just really colored this truth well. And stay with me here, it's not long, but he said this, he said, I live on the edge of downtown Portland in this fun micro-urban neighborhood. Across the street is a house full of single people who are essentially a walking advertisement for Nike. Nike is based in Portland suburbs, and I'm not sure if they work for the swoosh or are sponsored or what, but all six of them are avid runners. He says, now I run, but I'm not a runner. You know what I mean. These are people who are really runners. And frequently, early in the morning, I'm sitting there drinking my coffee on my front porch. I see them file out the front door to go for a sunrise run. Naturally, they're all wearing tights, and they look great, single-digit body fat, that lean but muscular look, impeccable posture, shoulder back, chin up, and then they start to prance. I I mean run. (laughs) They look more antelope than human. And regularly as they run off, I think to myself, I want that. I want to look good. I want to run a six minute mile without breaking a sweat. I want that level of health and energy and vitality. I want that life. But then I think about the lifestyle behind it. (laughs) While I was up watching Netflix until midnight eating, I won't mention, they ate celery and water for dinner and went to bed by eight o'clock. While I was sipping my coffee in my bathrobe on the front porch that morning, they were out sweating through the humid goop of summer and the ice of winter. When I run, I catch up on a podcast or stare off into the space thinking about my next talk. They run intervals every 400 meters and stretch their lungs to the breaking point. I run a cost-benefit analysis, and I quickly decide, as great as they look in the morning fog, it's not worth the pain. So I simply spectate. The reality is, I want the life but I'm not willing to adopt the lifestyle behind it. Church, is that not how we feel about Jesus? If we're going to be honest. We read the stories of Jesus. His joy, his resolute peace through uncertainty, his unanxious presence, his relaxed manner, how in the moment he was, how present he was, and we think, I want that life. We hear his open invite, you could have life more abundant, and we think, sign me up. We hear about his easy yoke and his soul deep rest, and we think, I need that. But then we're not willing to adopt his lifestyle. I say we, we're not willing to adopt his lifestyle. 
But in Jesus' case, we hear about his easy yoke and his soul deep rest. And in Jesus' case, it's worth the cost. In fact, you get back far more than you give up. There's a cross, yes, a death, but it's followed by an empty tomb, a new portal to life because in the way of Jesus, death is always followed by resurrection. Perhaps, just maybe perhaps, the Western church, we have lost the sight of the fact that the way of Jesus is actually the way of life. It's not just a set of ideas, that which we would call theology, or a list of do's and don'ts, what we call ethics. I mean, it is those things, but it's so much more than those things. It's a way of life based on that of Jesus himself, a lifestyle. Your life is the byproduct of your lifestyle. By by life, I mean your experience of the human condition, and by lifestyle, I mean the rhythms and the routines that make up your day-to-day existence, the way you organize your time, the way you spend your money. There's this saying in the business world that I think is great, quote, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. (laughs) Usually that's applied to widgets or the bottom line, but I think it applies to life as a whole. If the results you are getting in your life are lousy, for instance, anxiety at a simmer, mild depression, high levels of stress, chronic emotional burnout, little to no sense of the presence of God, an inability to focus your mind on the things that make for life, the inability to focus through one sermon, etc., then the odds are very good that something about your system, that is your life, is off kilter. The way you've organized your morning or evening routine, your schedule, your budget, your relationship to your phone, how you manage your resources of time, money, and attention, something is out of whack. It's often quoted that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But that's exactly what I do, and that's exactly what you do. We get a vision of the kind of life that's possible with Jesus, and so we go to church. We read that book or listen to that podcast. We catch a glimpse of the kind of life we ache for, one of emotional health, one of spiritual vitality. Our gut immediately says, yes, God, I want that life. But we head home from church with all the willpower we can muster. We're set out to change, but then we get right back to living the exact same lifestyle we had before we went, and nothing changes. It's the same cycle on repeat, stress, tiredness, distraction. Stress, tiredness, distraction. And we feel stuck over and over again. And then we wonder, what am I missing? This method of change simply does not work, does it? So the question tonight is, what does? And honestly, the Lord gives us the solution. And it's very simple. To experience the life more abundantly that Jesus described, his nonstop conscious enjoyment of God's presence and the world, what you have to do and what I have to do is adopt not only his theology and his ethics, but adopt his lifestyle. Just follow his way. That's really it. That's the secret of the easy yoke. Just take his life as a template for your own. Take on his habits and his practices. As an apprentice, copy, copy, your rabbi, copy, copy your rabbi's every move. After all, that's the whole point of discipleship. That's the whole point of apprenticeship. 
That's what Jesus is getting at in this odd imagery of a yoke, which, which when you think about it, it's kind of a bizarre language for an invitation to find rest for your souls. <laughs> it's a bizarre illustration. I mean, yokes are for farming, and farming is work, not rest. Frederick Dale Bruner, he's, he's an amazing mind on the Gospel of Matthew, and his insight into the paradox of an easy yoke I think is worth reading, so let me read it to you. He says, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers that we might think tired workers need least. Here's what we think, he says. We think that tired workers need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus, Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life. I love that. A fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, will develop us in a balance and in a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way that we've been living. You see, the genius of Jesus' invitation, there's an emotional and even spiritual weight to life that you and I cannot and will not escape. We all experience it, especially as we grow older. So get ready, guys. An easy life is a complete, utter myth, if not a red herring. The byproduct of an advertising-drenched and social media-duped culture thinks we can find an easy life, but no, the reality is life is difficult. It's full stop. There's no comma, no but, no end note. All the wise men and women of history have had so much to say about this, and they say no new technology or substance or pill will ever erase humanity's fall. Best case scenario, we mitigate its effects as we advance Jesus' return, but there's no escaping the pain. Why do you think there's so much addiction and pain in our world? Why do you think that there's so many people that are having substance abuse, but the more run-of-the-mill addictions of pornography or, or promiscuity or, or overeating or, or um, inappropriate dieting or exercise, exercise or work or travel or shopping or social media or church? And yes, even church can become an addiction, a dopamine hit that you run to to escape a father wound or an emotional pain or an unhappy marriage, but that's another subject. People all over the world, outside the church and in, are looking for an escape, a way out from under the crushing weight on this side of Eden. But there's no escaping it. The best the world can offer is a temporary distraction to delay the inevitable or deny the inescapable. And that's why Jesus doesn't offer an escape. He offers us something far better, equipment. He offers his apprentices a new, a whole new way to bear the weight of their own humanity, and that being with ease. At his side, like two oxen in a field, tied shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, all of the heavy lifting at his pace, slow, slow, unhurried, present to the moment, full of love and joy and peace. Church, an easy life isn't an option, but here's, here's the encouragement, hopefully. An easy yoke is. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can carry lighter and live better, but here's the reality, church. You and I must take it, put it on willingly, submissively. It's a picture of commitment to him. We're, we're in this together, Jesus. Jesus. 
And what I love about Jesus is he made it a point to say, I'm meek and lowly in heart. In other words, there's nothing that you can face in your life that you should be upset about giving to me. I'm lowly. Nothing's beneath me. You may think, that's not a real burden. I don't have time to bother Jesus with this. But Jesus would say, nothing's beneath me. Nothing's too low. Hey, if it hurts your heart, it has my attention. Jesus is saying, I am meek and lowly. I'm meek. I have all the power in the world to get this work done, to advance God's kingdom in my own power. But I'm willing to slow down and carry some of the load so that you, my apprentice, can find some rest. So learn of me. And if we do these things, the promise is this. We'll find rest. He'll give us rest. But we have to make this clear tonight that you can't find the rest that your soul is craving until you get yoked up with Jesus. You cannot find the rest that your soul is craving until you get yoked up with Jesus. Rest doesn't mean the absence of burdens, the absence of problems, the absence of adversity. No, it means peace in the midst of them. So does your soul need rest tonight, church? I know mine does. Here's what we need to do. Take on the easy yoke of Jesus. Embrace his way of life. He promises, I'll give rest to your soul. Dallas Willard once called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And uh, he said, quote, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He told that to his mentee, John Ortberg, many years ago. To think about Jesus' lifestyle would probably help us tonight. Jesus made sure to inject a healthy dose of margin into his life. It's been said that margin is the space between our load and our limits, and for many of us, there is no space between our load and our limits. We are at 80%, I'm sorry, we are going at 100%, we're not going at 80% with room to breathe, we're all in, we're all out. Jesus' weekly schedule, I believe, was a prophetic act against the hurried rhythms of our world. If you studied the life of Jesus, he would, he would regularly get up early, go off to a quiet place just to be alone with his father. There's a story when the disciples woke up, Jesus was gone. He wasn't there. Uh, left before dawn just to be alone and, and greet the day in the quiet. Sometimes he'd go away overnight, even for a few weeks at a time. And, and more than once, we read stories about Jesus sleeping in <laughs> and his disciples having to wake him up. I like that Jesus, um, personally. Every chance he got, he, he, he would enjoy a nice long meal with his friends, creating space for in-depth conversation and with the highs and lows in life, and he was present. And he'd practice Sabbath on a weekly basis, an entire day set aside for nothing but rest and worship every single week. Note his practice of simplicity. We could go on and on and on, but my point is simple. Jesus very much displays an unhurried life. And hurriness and busyness are two different things. There's actually a good kind of business, busyness if you're being productive in the right things, but hurriness often is not effective and not productive. You see, he put on display, Jesus, an unhurried life where space for God and love for people were his top priorities. And because he said yes to the Father and his kingdom, he constantly said no to countless other invitations. And then he turns around to his disciples and he says, follow me. Take on the easy yoke. Again, what does it mean to follow Jesus or apprentice under Jesus? It means you live the way Jesus lived. You take on his life as a template. You take his teachings as a template, your model, your pattern, which that makes me ask this tonight. How would Jesus live if he were me? 
You've heard the, the book, um, In His Steps, and uh, the preacher, his name slips my mind, but he, he challenged his congregation before they, they made decisions or in any circumstance or situation they got, and he said, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? WWJD. But we need to ask contextually, what would Jesus do if he were me in my situation? Because, I mean, Jesus was a first century single Jewish rabbi, not a 21st century parent, account manager, student, pastor, or professional whatever. So we kind of have to ideate and transpose a bit. See, Jesus wasn't a dad. I am. But I'd imagine if Jesus was the father of my Audrey, Jace, Jude, and Hazel, he'd probably spend some time with them. And so I seek to do that as an act of my apprenticeship to Jesus, who never had kids. Say, say you're a wife. Say you're a stay-at-home mom, or perhaps a mom who has a career and, and you're trying to make ends meet for your family, or maybe perhaps you're a widow. Jesus was none of those things. But your driving question could be this, how would he do this? You get the gist. I think for many of us, he would... <laughs> I think he'd slow way down. What we're really talking about here is is a rule of life. Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. That line is not from the scripture, but I I could just see Jesus nodding his head off in the corner as that's read. Um, Over the last several years, there's been this explosion of chatter in the self-help world over this idea of a fixed hour schedule. Basically, you write up an ideal day or an ideal week or an ideal month, a blank calendar. You, you start with all your top priorities. The spiritual disciplines go in first if you're a follower of Jesus, of course. The, the sleep, the exercise, the work, the play, the reading, the margin, etc. And within reason, you stick to it. But most people don't realize this idea didn't start in the business world or in the marketplace. It started in the monastery, not a decade ago, but over a millennium ago where monastic orders and other entire communities chose to do life together around a rule of life. A rule was a schedule, a set of practices to order your life around the way of of your leader, your teacher, in community. It, It was a way to keep from getting sucked into the hurry, the busyness, the noise, the distraction of regular everyday life, a way to slow down, a way to live for what really matters, what Jesus called in John 15, abiding key relationships with family and community, the work God has set before you, a healthy soul, you know, the good stuff. The word rule comes from the Latin word regula, which means a straight piece of wood. Think about a ruler. But it was also used for a trellis. A trellis. Think of Jesus' teaching on abiding in the vine from John 15, one of his most important teachings, I believe. Now think of what's underneath every thriving vine. A trellis. A structure to hold up the vine so it can grow and bear fruit. You see the word picture. What a trellis is to a vine, a rule of life is to abiding. It's a structure. In this case, a schedule and a set of practices to set up abiding as the central pursuit of your life. It's a way to organize all of your life around the practice of the presence of God. To work and rest and play and eat and hang out with your friends and run errands and catch up on all the news. And out of a place of deep, loving enjoyment of the Father's and company. And so if a vine doesn't have a trellis, it'll die. And if your life with Jesus doesn't have some kind of structure to facilitate health and growth, it'll wither away. 
See, following Jesus has to make it onto your schedule and into your practices, or it will simply never happen. Apprenticeship to Jesus will will only remain an idea at that point, not a reality in your life. And here's the rub. Most of us are too busy to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. We're too busy to follow Jesus. And you may be sitting there thinking tonight, just like I was as I studied this, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful, but I don't have time. I'm a graduate in college. I'm in grad school. I work a demanding job. I have small children to take care of. I'm training for a marathon. I'm an introvert. Honestly, uh, excuses, those those are all fair, and I, I get it. I live in the same world. But we should ask ourselves, do we really not have the time? How much time do we spend watching TV? How much time do we spend online or on social media? How much time do we spend on Amazon just scrolling and shopping? If each of us kept a time log for a week, we may be shocked at how much time we give to trivial things. Most of us have more than enough time to work with because Jesus ordered it that way. Even in the busiest of seasons of life, we just have to reallocate our time to seek first the kingdom of God and not ourselves and our own fleshly entertainment. The hard truth is that following Jesus is something you do. It's a practice as much as it is a faith. At their core, the practices of Jesus are about a relationship with our Father, God. All relationships take time. Is our relationship with Jesus any different? We get out of it what we put in. This isn't some sort of legalistic guilt trip. This is an invitation, church, to the life we actually crave and ache for, a life that can be found only by moving through the world shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. So I guess we come to a crossroads, a get on or get off moment. Are you ready to construct a trellis to your vine? A schedule, a practice or two to create space for life with Jesus, to make room for the love and joy and peace to become your default settings? Are you ready to arrange or rearrange your days? so that Jesus' life becomes your new normal? And if you do, if you're willing to do that, here's his promise, I'll give you rest.